today we are uh, in Advent, and Advent is a very special season, and I want us to take note of this special season uh, this morning as we continue our series, which is called Simple Christmas. Christ uh, is our hope of glory. And so our whole focus over the next couple weeks as we prepare for this beautiful season, the coming of Christ. Advent means the coming of Christ. And we want to keep it simple. So that was our idea as we talked about it. How do we keep Christmas simple? Well, we keep focusing on Jesus, right? I mean, it's kind of simple. If you, if you want to keep Christmas simple, you keep focusing on, you keep bringing it back to Jesus, right? That's what you do. And so this morning, we're just going to bring it right back to Jesus. Um, it's so much more than simply trying to shop less or put up less a number of lights. It's understanding what is tr- Christmas is all about, truly what it's all about. And here it is in one small little sentence, four words, God came near. That's what John reminds us of this morning in John chapter 1. He reminds us that God came near. And so this Christmas, that's what I want you to focus on, especially this morning. God has come near. It's really the wonder of Advent. I am reading a a small book that was put out by Scott the Painter. His name's Scott Erickson. I absolutely love his drawings, his his diagrams and Instagram. I follow him on Instagram, and and I have commented a few times, and he's commented back and said thanks for the comment. And I, I, I feel like he really has the pulse on the faith in a very unique way. And what he does in Honest Advent, it's 25 readings. And Bill asked me to um, buy a box of these um, through Zonervan. We get a little discount um, and about 40% discount. And so I bought a case of them and they're in the back. And if you would like one, I want you to take one, one per family. If you'd like to make a donation, great, five bucks, whatever, drop it in the back there. There's a little uh, small uh, plastic cylinder. If if you don't have five dollars, that's fine. I know this year we're all going to be generous with our money as we give to major organizations, ministries, churches, and... uh, You know, so this is a gift from the River Church, and I want to encourage you to read it. 25 beautiful devotions, just a couple pages. I read the very first one this morning, and basically what he's doing in Honest Advent is he's taking us back to the moment when Mary discovered that she was pregnant. And through the eyes of a woman, he explores the wonder of the Advent, the coming of of a new baby, Jesus. And all of the changes that would occur in her body and as she navigated this future. And the very first, the very first uh, entry, which is Annunciation, comes from Luke chapter 1, 28. Consider this your Advent reading. As you're preparing for Christmas, listen. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. 
And he writes in this that when revelation comes, it often brings transformation. Revelation brings transformation. When God reveals something in your life, something's about to change. Something radical's going to change. He's going to mess things up. But it's going to be powerful. And so that's the thought. And so at the end, I'm using it as a journal. And I actually, in the very end, I wrote, what is the revelation that God has given me? And I wrote in here a couple revelations. I'm losing control as I get older. And I wrote that. And I also wrote for the church, this new location brings new adventure. Bringing us into new territory, new people, new exciting conversions to faith. And so I wrote that in my journal. I'm using this as a journal. So we're five days behind. So you've got to make that up. You can make it up. Come on, that's the river style anyway. We're five days behind. But begin Advent today. Because many of you didn't even know. So now you're just clicking in. It's Advent season. And you're five days behind. So read five. Just two a day. One in the morning, one at night until you catch up. But I really want to encourage you for the next 25 days, to re- 20 days, to read Honest Advent. So they're in the back, take one. And so we're in this great season. So I'm out to lunch with my little grandson, the only one of my four grandchildren that can speak. And so uh, I asked him, he, sa- he just volunteered that it's Advent. I'm like, wow, he's got an Advent candle. And he said he got a piece of candy from the Advent calendar. And so I said, well, what's Advent about? And he said, Jesus. And I said, uh, you know, then he said, I said, do you know what Christmas is about, August? He's three years old. We're sitting down at Flying Fin for sushi. I mean, this is a spoiled child. He's getting sashimi. He doesn't even know it. If he saw the bill, I mean, it would be like, I, I wouldn't be able to make that kind of allowance in five years. And yet he got sashimi, and he loved, only likes salmon, so, you know, it's the best. But um, whatever. And so I asked him what Christmas is all about, and he says, I do. Because everything is I do. It's not yes, it's I do. Oh, I do. And so I do know it's God, Jesus, and then he goes, Pops, who's the other guy? And I said, well, is it the Holy Spirit? He goes, no, no, Pops, it's heaven. So it's God, Jesus, and heaven. Okay, it's not bad. It's on the right track. And then I said, do you know who Jesus is? And he says, I do. Jesus died on a cross and now lives in my tummy. And that's how he explained the gospel message. Advent is about Jesus coming to this earth, dying on a cross, and now he lives in your tummy. And that is so true. He lives within us. As the writer Paul says in Colossians 1.27, that it is Christ in us, the hope of glory. All the hope of glory. You know what glory is? Glory is the future of all things. The future hope of all things. Everything you've hoped for, everything you want to be true, everything you're waiting for is in the Advent Jesus, coming of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? And so Luke, uh, um, Taylor, excuse me, Taylor reminded us in Luke chapter 2. 
that Simeon and Anna were the first two to worship this Christ child. See, these weren't two old people that were just, that lost their minds and had no place else to go, but they just hung around the temple waiting for a handout. They were on purpose waiting for one individual to come. The Advent is about waiting, waiting, waiting. Are you waiting with expectancy? Are you waiting for the one to come that you might worship? And as Taylor pointed out last week, he said, we worship what we value most. We worship what we value most. And this morning I want to talk about finding something worth worshiping. It's Jesus who came near in John chapter 1. And I want to read that passage to you this morning. And I want to point out three simple truths about Jesus from this beautiful prologue of John, the gospel writer of John. Imagine the New Testament opening with this, that John came before Matthew, and this is the very beginning of the New Testament. And here it is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And jumping down to verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. The glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John testified about this one, saying, This is the one whom I said, He comes after me, that is higher rank than I. For he existed before me, for of his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained to us. Jesus is the Logos that becomes flesh and dwells among us. That is the simple truth of Christmas. That's what this passage says. That's what it reveals to us. And I want to look at that this morning with you and learn three things. First of all, that Jesus is God. The second thing I want to see is that Jesus is flesh. And the third thing I want, to sh- I want you to see, it comes later in the text when the Pharisees come and ask John, are you the Christ? And he says the most simple but profound words, I am not the Christ. You are not the Christ. The third thing I want to see is not only is Jesus God, Jesus is flesh, but you're not Jesus. And it's important for us to understand all three, to understand how God came near. So let's look at those three in that order. And the first one is, is in the beginning. And here, here it is. Let, let me read it from the Greek because it's so beautiful. And it is really important because it reminds us it's the beginning of the Old Testament as well. And it says this. In arche hain ha logos. In arche, in the beginning, ain is, was, or is, ha logos, the word. The word halagos was from the very beginning. In the beginning was the word. 
And then it says, Kai halagos hain pros ton theon. And the logos was with God. And theos hain halagos. And God is the logos. In the beginning is the logos, and he was with God, and he is the God. And then it goes on to talk about his role in the beginning. When we look at the Hebrew scriptures, by the way, we discover the very first statement made in the Bible. The very first thing. You know what the very first word is? Bereshith. Bereshith bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. The beginning of time, there was a God. Before anything else, there was never a time in which God did not exist. But there was a time in which the world, the cosmos, and all that God created, there was a time in which it began. And in its beginning, God was the one who created. And John reminds us that Jesus was there in the creation. That Jesus, in fact, is God. The Logos is God. It's very, very clear. When I was at UC Berkeley, I was studying one night. And I was in the library late. Um, library closed at midnight. And I would often be there till midnight. And then I would hear, you know, library's closed, you got to leave. And, um, and so I would, you know, but, but this time I was um, headed out about 11 o'clock. And I was walking by the front desk, circulation desk, and there's this book of like, there's a shelf of new books. And on it, I saw this book that said, Jesus is not God. It was written by Victor Paul Weirwill. Jesus is not God. You can Google it. There's like two books out that was written on this subject compared to about a thousand books that talk about the fact that Jesus really is God. But this guy set out to write this book. So I sat there and literally skimmed it. I was like really mad. Like, how could he have the audacity to write the fact that Jesus is not God? I mean, I've staked my whole life on it. I'm a believer. I'm in college. And he's actually telling me that Jesus is not God. You know why he says that? Because Jesus never says, I am God. He's a son of God, but he's not God's son, he says. And so I, and I looked at all of his arguments, and it was just literally word-twisting. And then I thought, and I sat down, and I began thinking through it. John 8, 28, doesn't he say, ego eimi, I am, which goes back to Exodus chapter 3 when God appears to Moses, and, and Moses says, who, do you, who should I say sent me? And he says, tell him I am sent you. Who is I am? The self-existent one. And Jesus identifies himself with the, the self-existent one. Jesus identifies himself in John 8, uh, uh, 28, not 58. Ego me. I'm the one, the same one that God says he is in Exodus chapter 3. John chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. How much clearer do you have to be? John 14, verse 9, when, when Thomas wanted to meet Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and confirm his identity, he finally says, my Lord and my God, and Jesus is the one who says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How much more clear does Jesus need to be in order to identify himself as the Logos who is actually God? I remember in high school, 
listening to Dr. Walter Martin. He was the Bible answer man. You may remember Dr. Walter Martin. Photographic memory, could recite the Greek from memory, and he would literally shred skeptics. He would just eat them for lunch. He was so brilliant, he had every argument, and somebody called in and said, Jesus isn't God. Because here in this particular passage, God is the Logos, but it's, there's, no, there's no article. And so here in this passage in John chapter 1, there's no article. So it's not the God is Jesus, the Logos. It's a God is Jesus. And therein lies one of the most insane, complicated, yet deceptive beliefs that have distinctively separated all religions, cults from Christianity. If you do not hold to the deity of Jesus Christ, you are off base in the very first verse of the New Testament, according to John. And you now divert off of Christianity to this other place where Judaism, Islam, cults, false religions, because if you claim that Jesus is just a God, then he no longer has the power and control in your life, and he's no longer the one you want to separate, you want to celebrate this, this morning as the one who is coming this Christmas. Does that make sense? I mean, this is so powerful. And what it comes down to is I was listening to Dr. Walter Martin talk about, he goes, ah, but you don't know the Greek. When you really look at the Greek, it comes down to these four categories. The word theos is a qualitative, anarthrous, predicate, nominative. And as I used to tell my kids, shove that in your pipe and smoke it. Whenever there was something that I thought was really important, shove that in your pipe and smoke it. It's a qualitative, anarthrous, predicate, nominative. That's how theos is being used. It's an arthrus. It doesn't have an article. doesn't need an article. It's in the predicate position. It actually qualifies the, the subject, which is halagos. So in other words, God is the quality. Logos is the quality of God. That's how the Greek is written. You cannot get around that. Right there in the very first verse, we have identified that Jesus is deity. Now, for the Greeks that were listening and heard this, you got to understand from a Greek perspective, they were looking for the logos in two ways. The logos was the perfect idea of reason. That it was the, it was the perfect argument. But also, the Greeks also worshipped not only the perfect idea, the, the mediator between the mortal and the immortal was this logos, this understanding. They also worshipped the body, the physical body. During the Greek games, they were always out to win and find who was the best, the perfect form. And so in their mindset, when John comes and says, this one, Jesus, who becomes flesh, is the Logos, they're thinking, you're telling me this is the perfect reason, the perfect, the final conclusion, the final answer to all the questions that mediate between heaven and earth 
is Jesus. And you're telling me that Jesus is the perfect human, the perfect man, the most perfect. Yes, that's what John is saying. And to the, by the way, Billy Crystal, I just got to tell you this story really quick. I don't know how I found it on YouTube, but when I finish my workout, sometimes I sit and watch a few YouTubes. There's so much stuff out there. It's so interesting. And so I, this thing popped up, and it was, it was Muhammad Ali's funeral back in 2016 when he passed away. Anybody go attend? Did you watch it online? Well, I watched the 14-minute clip of Billy Crystal give his speech during this remarkable service. It was just like presidents were there. I mean, dignitaries. It was a big event. Billy Crystal got up and said, the greatest fighter of all times, 35 years after his career ended, he is still called the champ. Some call him the greatest. I think that was what he called himself. And he was great. And he was the champ. And, he, and then he, he went on to talk about his relationship and how Muhammad Ali once met him when he was doing an imitation with Howard Cosell and Muhammad Ali, and, and he turned down to me and says, you're my little brother. So Muhammad Ali calls Billy Crystal's little brother, and so they formed a bond. And, and so now, during his funeral, Billy Crystal's reflecting on that life, and he says, he's a silent messenger of peace. Muhammad Ali once said, life is best when you build bridges between people, not walls. And then at the very end of his 14-minute speech, he says, my friends, once in a thousand years or so do we get to hear a Mozart or see a Picasso or read a Shakespeare. Ali was one of them. And yet at the heart of all of it, he was still a kid from Louisville who ran with the gods and walked with the crippled and smiled at the foolishness of it all. And yet, Ali succumbed to an ultimate and final death that every single person encounters except one, Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9, 27 reminds us it has been pointed for man to die once. So at this point, there's a one-to-one ratio. Every single person dies. And then comes judgment except Jesus. There's something different about Jesus. To the Jews, logos meant the word. It goes back to Genesis chapter 1 that when God spoke the word, he spoke into existence with his word. Well, that is Jesus. In the Old Testament, in the creation, Jesus is the word that is spoken that brings forth all things. Colossians 1 tells us all things into existence. And for the Jew, that word is an action, the final action, the final movement of God of creating is in Jesus. So John's got the attention of the Greeks. He's got the attention of the Jews. Does he have our attention this morning that he really is God? In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, a child will be born to us a government will rest on his shoulders, and he, his name will be called four things. He, is he these four things in your life? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. See, because Jesus is God, his name means something in your life. 
And so what I want to ask you this morning in this first idea is which of these right now do you need Jesus to be? As he comes, he comes near to you as a mighty counselor, a mighty God, a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, a prince of peace, or, or, or the everlasting father. You need a father? Do you need peace? Do you need a mighty, powerful God right now in your life? Do you need a wonderful counselor to counsel you through something right now that you can't figure out? That's who Jesus is. See, all of this is possible because the Logos is God. Truly God. I'm looking at peace right now. Or maybe I'm missing my parents about this time and I need counsel. Or I need a mighty powerful God in my life to overcome this dark gloom that has settled on me. What is it for you? Until Jesus is fully God, he will never be the greatest object of your worship. We live in a very destructive time right now. That God is not present in everyday life. And our world is full of skeptics and scientists and academics and specialists that have done workarounds God. C.K. Chesterton, before he became a Christian and gave his life to Christ, said the world is full of magic. There must be a magician behind it. E. Stanley Jones said, if we haven't that within us which is above us, we will soon yield to that which is around us. And that's what the world is doing now. I was reading about that Michigan killing, and my mind just cannot comprehend what two parents were thinking buying a young 15-year-old an assault rifle. I don't understand that. It's mind-boggling to me. It's, it's, it's beyond comprehension that this is Parenting 101 at its worst. It's just, where are we going? I was listening to Josh White, and he's talking about this idea of cosmic, what's brought about, what's happened, is we are living without the Logos. And he says it's, it's produced within us a cosmic loneliness that is epidemic. Suicide, drug overdose, dose, poor parenting skills. This is all due to one thing, and this is what Josh White says, God fading out of our information-saturated consciousness. We're no longer thinking with Jesus in our minds. Jesus, God did not send a perfect argument. God sent a perfect person. The Logos is a person sent to saturate your mind, your consciousness, to change everything about you. Embrace him. Embrace him. Two final things that I want to say rather briefly. Jesus in verse 14 becomes the flesh, the sarks. And what a contrast, by the way, logos, the perfect, the perfect argument, the perfect person, the perfect act of God. The logos now becomes what? Perfection becomes vulnerable. Sarks is the underbelly of humanity. 
The word sarx means flesh in Greek. The Greek word sarx is flesh. And the way John is using it, he's saying it's the most vulnerable part of us. Jesus embraced on our behalf. That's what he did. The vulnerable. In 1964, there's a remarkable study that was done as a result of a, of a, of a stabbing that happened in New York. Her name is Kitty Gen, uh, Genevieve. And in Kew Gardens of Queens, New York, one night, a 20-year-old bartender was walking home in the middle of the night and was approached by a man and stabbed. She began screaming for help. 37 people heard her scream. No one came to her help. She struggled into the apartment building and sat on the stairwell, bleeding, not fatally wounded, but bleeding. The man fled. He came back later and stabbed her more and killed her. And 37 people either saw it or heard it and didn't do anything about it. The vulnerability of humanity was displayed in that moment in 1964. And since then, the studies were put out called the bystander the bystander effect of what it's like to, to see something but not do something about it. It happened again in, on the San Luis Obispo campus many, many years later in like uh, 1996 when Kristen Smart was murdered. And a student from Norway at, on the slow campus was riding his bike that night by a dorm room and saw through the window in a common area two individuals, Kristen Smart and a young college student boy, struggling. And he drove, rode right around them by. And later that night, she was murdered. Didn't do anything about it. Yet Jesus is the one who becomes Sark's. He becomes the vulnerableness of humanity for us. He came, he came down. He came down out of the apartment to rescue you and I. That's what Jesus did. And John is describing Jesus now in a second way, that he is the vulnerable flesh. When he heard our cries, he came down to understand us to understand our vulnerabilities, to understand our weaknesses. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 3, it says, the bruised reed he will not break. For the vulnerable, he will become vulnerable. He will not break the vulnerable. He will bring healing to the vulnerable. The most vulnerable parts of your life are rescued through Jesus the Sarks this Christmas because of what John says in John 1.14. It says two things about him. First of all, it says that he dwelt among us. He tabernacles. He actually tabernacled among us. How about that? That's, that's an idea. That, that the idea of the tabernacle that Luke talked about when Simeon and, oh no, another passage on prayer, you talked about it, right? And the idea that, that when Jesus went to the house of prayer, the tabernacle, the temple, he cleared him out. He cleared him out. Why? Because they... It was the presence of God. I don't know who spoke on that. 
But uh, I'm giving him credit. It was an excellent message, Luke, anyway. And he cleared out all of the inconsistencies because that was the holiest place on earth, the tabernacle, where God would meet with humanity. There's this thin line between humanity and deity, and that thin line touches at the tabernacle. Think about it. The temple. The early tabernacle in the Old Testament was a, was a, was a fortress that was built and assembled and deassembled as the Israelites moved through the desert, and then it become, became the place of the temple in Mount Moriah when Solomon built that temple. It will be rebuilt, but now the temple is us. But before it's us, it's Jesus who dwells, who tabernacles among us. He has come down to be with us. But second, John talks about this idea of the gap between Moses and God and how God wants to see Moses in his glory. And God reminds us of Exodus chapter 33 where God says, you can't see my face. No one has seen me. No one will ever see me until eternity. And so I'll pass by. You, you hide yourself in the cleft of this rock and I'll pass by. And as he passed by, Moses saw the backside of God and he saw the Shekinah glory. Because there was a gap between Moses and God, between the people of God and God himself. The gap exists, and what John is saying is that Jesus filled that gap. You know when two people are in an argument, a gap forms. And atonement is needed to bring two people back together in relationship because of the gap, because what has happened has caused the gap. That's true of humanity that is true of every single one of us. And this morning, Jesus fills the gap. I want to end with one last thing that I find in John chapter 1. Here's the last thing I want to say this morning. So Jesus is God. You can come to him. You can bring your needs. You can see him for who you are and how he meets those very things that you need most. He identifies your, with your vulnerability, your greatest sense of vulnerability. But then there's this discussion at the end of this section where the Pharisees come and they ask, well, jo well who are you, John? Who's John? John, are you the Christ? And he says these words, I am not the Christ. Are you Elijah? I am not Elijah. I am simply a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet says. Behold, he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There he is. And then he says this profound thing. And in the Greek, it's very interesting. After me comes a man who is a higher rank than I, for he existed before I am. Literally, in the Greek, it's like the one that comes after me is really the one who comes before me. Because he's greater than me. Yes, Jesus will come after me. I am simply the one in the wilderness shouting out, pointing the way. He is the Christ. I am not the Christ. And he comes after me, but really he comes before me because he's existed before me. I am not the Christ. And I think you and I need to understand this morning, you are not the Christ. Christmas is not about you. It is not about you. It is about understanding 
who Jesus is. It's the scene in Rudy. Remember the scene in Rudy where he can't get into Notre Dame and he's going to a junior college and he's so frustrated he goes to the priest and he's sitting there and he asks the question, what else can I do? I thought I've done everything. And the priest says these words. Remember that? Remember the line? How many, how many people have seen Rudy? He says, in the years of religious study, I have come to two hard incontrovertible facts. There is a God, and I am not Him. And that is a great reminder for us this morning. You are not God. Because in that, we recognize we are simply a voice crying out in the wilderness. And Jesus comes like the prophets who were considered mad crazy. John was considered mad. The guy that ate honey and locusts and Elijah and Jeremiah and all the rest of them that came before were almost considered madmen. And Jesus would come like them, but they weren't. Jesus wasn't them. See, madmen are devoted individuals to a cause when everyone else gives up on the cause. That's the way I define madness. Or at least people see that you're mad. Reminds me of Moneyball, one of my favorite movies, Brad Pitt. Don't particularly follow his style of acting, but this particular movie I really like because it's the underdog. Everybody was against him. And yet, in a, in a sense, his madness transformed baseball because it was all about the odds. In Jesus, Jesus is both mad, but he's also far more than that. He's a lot like the man of La Mancha. You seen the play, Man of La Mancha? It tells the story of the author of Don Quixote, Cervantes, who is in prison during the Spanish Inquisition, and he has within him a manuscript and in the play, Man of La Mancha, which is Don Quixote, the story of Don Quixote, live, Cervantes has the manuscript with him. And the other inmates are going to take it away from him, but they decide, let's have a mock trial and see if he's worthy of keeping his manuscript. And so Cervantes tells a story of madness of rescuing people, of fighting furniture and running into mirrors and practicing chivalry with bartenders and common people. And, and the story that Cervantes tells in this prison in the play is kind of madness. And yet something happens in the play. He transforms a woman who works in the bar. She's a sex worker. She's been she's been set aside by culture and society. And her name is Aldonza. And in the play, Cervantes, who is kind of mad, sees her as another woman and has compassion on her and calls her Dulcinea. Cervantes dies in the story that he tells in prison. And yet, when one of Cervantes' servants comes up to Aldonza 
She replies, I am no longer Aldonza, I am Dulcinea. The madman has transformed me. In this account, the last thing I want you to see is that John says, I baptize with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit transforms. The water prepares us. The Holy Spirit transforms us. And in this passage, we learn that we are not God because we cannot transform people. God does. That's what Jesus does. He is the God who has come near. Embrace him because he has embraced you. Because he wants to transform you. Father, this Christmas may we reset our whole thinking about who you are. You are the, you are the God of creation who is the Logos, Jesus, who came flesh, who now baptizes with the Holy Spirit. We celebrate you this season in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, why don't you all stand as we go into worship to end our time together, if you're able.
Sing it one last time. You are here. You are holy. this morning that we are standing in your presence. Lord, that we are not alone, that you came in flesh to save us, to be with us, to give us access to God. And Lord, this morning we position our hearts in a place of worship and adoration. You are worthy of our love, God. As we pour out our love on you this morning, we receive your love in return. You are worthy of it all. You together with one voice. You are worthy of it all. All my love, Jesus. You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things. For from you are all things. And to you are all things. You deserve the glory. All the saints and
morning on the price that you paid to come down to be flesh to be in the highest form of humility and vulnerability so Lord this morning as we come to the communion table we are reminded of the humble kings Taylor led us in our staff meeting this week Lord to adore the humble king may we follow your footsteps and your humility and your love in this season, God. Teach us how to love, Lord. We give you all the honor and the glory to your name. Whenever you're ready, if you want to go to the communion table, as we normally do, we'll take communion and then be released for the day. And we'll sing a few more choruses while you guys take communion. So bless you all. It's always fun to see who's going to go first. Good job, Brittany. 